Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Net Rocks, episode 1298. Recorded Monday, April 25th, 2016. Well, welcome back. I'm Carl Franklin. He's Richard Campbell. We're geeking out. We're back. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. Uh, I guess we're trying something new with this show because I've got these interviews and uh, this is going to be interesting. It really is. The, the last time we talked about this, and by the way, excuse my voice, I seem to have brought something back from Europe and uh, it just won't go away. But uh, needless to say, I won't be coughing in your face. I'm going to be a little rough. But the last time we did this, we talked about genetically modified organisms, GMOs. And we had brought up Monsanto a couple of times. Yes. And uh, I guess they heard us. Yep. Apparently, they listened to the show. Yeah. <laughs> they actually listened. I asked specifically. They listened to both a modern agriculture show, although most of those folks had been in agriculture their whole lives. So, it's like halfway through the show, they agreed with what we were saying and stopped listening. Right. <laughs> but they listened to all of the first GMO show. And so, we're happy to participate in the second one. Right. So they actually wanted to talk to you and that's what you did. You had a call yes. with them. And th these are the scientists in Monsanto? Yes, a couple of them. Yeah, uh uh, uh Donna Farmer and uh, and Amy Hood both. That's great. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue the conversation from last time and where appropriate, we're going to play clips from that conversation just sort of bring the whole story together. Absolutely. But before we do that, you know what time it is. It's time for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, the last time we did a GMO show, I told you about my new podcast called Two Keto Dudes. Yeah. And this is a new podcast I started because I went on a ketogenic diet because I had type 2 diabetes. And in doing the research, I found that the ketogenic diet had real promise for reversing type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And a, a friend of ours who used to work at Dev Express, Richard Morris, has been in ketosis for two years. Wow. And has lost a whole lot of weight, has completely reversed diabetes. He was cheering us on. He's a geek like us. And I figured, man, uh, I'm totally in. So since then, I've lost 51 pounds. Wow. I have reversed my type 2 diabetes. My A1C, which is a measure of blood glucose over a three-month period, 
it's an average, went from 7.4, which is considered diabetic, to 6.1, which is in the pre-diabetes range, and that was only after two months. So if I went back today, I would, uh, you know, I would, I would probably be even lower. And then uh, my doctor was completely amazed. However, my LDL went up, which tends to happen on this ketogenic diet. But a really right. geeky and interesting thing happens is that when people have high LDL because of a bad diet, because of a lot of sugar and carbohydrates, the LDL is a different type of LDL. It's a small, dense LDL particle, which is created by your liver. And uh, that liver cholesterol is the stuff that causes atherosclerosis, which is, you know, heart disease, the lining and the placking of your arteries. So I said, well, you know, this is a different kind of LDL. It's a light, fluffy, buoyant, for lack of a better analogy, LDL, which comes from, you know, dietary saturated fat and that kind of stuff. And it's benign. And I'll tell you what, why don't we do a test for actual heart disease for sclerosis? So she did. She ordered me a carotid artery ultrasound. And I just got the test back from that. And they're clear. Nice. So clearly the ketogenic diet is working. But if you want to track the progress again, it's twoketodudes.com. And as of this recording, we have 14 shows. We've uh, had almost 200,000 downloads, and it's taking off like crazy. That's great, man. Yeah. So that's my better known framework, man. Awesome. Yeah. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1259, the one we did just a couple of months ago on modern agriculture. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And this comment comes from David Arno, who says, This was a great geek out show and sets the stage for some future ones exploring GMOs, for example. Hmm. You think? (laughs) (laughs) one thing that struck me was the way we talk about the early domestication of wheat through natural selection of seeds that do not drop from the kernel to an extent that wheat domesticated humanity as much as we domesticated it natural selection created a symbiotic relationship the wheat rewards us with food in exchange for seeding future generations of the wheat and you're not wrong right this was in the omnivore's dilemma too this whole idea that corn has been domesticating humans right to spread corn far and wide, like you talk about a successful plant. It's really amazing how little organisms have such influence over bigger organisms. I mean, it's essentially what a virus is, right? Yep. They're remarkably successful creatures. They keep spreading, they keep reproducing. If your measure is continued existence, which right. is a fairly reasonable measure. Yeah, it's pretty much the driving force behind life. Uh, and David goes on to say, I look forward to the GMO geek out. And here comes the second one, dude. All right. I sit firmly on the no camp on this topic. This isn't through any fear of negative health impacts. It's simply due to opposing the principle of patenting and copywriting genetic material. Yeah. And I look forward to hearing Richard and, of course, Carl's take on the subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that's a good reason to avoid the food. A, I would argue you're not avoiding it anyway. Mm. Right. Because pretty much everything's been genetically modified in one form or, an- or another. So it's, I don't know how much of a stand it is. The interesting thing about the whole patent side of genetics is the reason you hear about it is it's under debate. There's really been no legal ruling here Mm. because everybody's afraid of the precedent. If you actually go to court over the defense of a patent for genetic material and they rule against you, 
that could blow the whole thing up all at once. Right. So, you know, the game right now is sitting in the we don't really know category, right? They go back and forth and back and forth. And it's really a question of are you willing to to put your money where your mouth is? Drop the millions it's going to take to to actually prosecute a case knowing you're going to set precedence. Absolutely. Uh, and that being said, I am not keen on patenting genetic materials. That would be, you know, that goes back to colonization kind of mindsets, right? I found it, therefore it's mine. Right. You know, you didn't invent anything here. You found something. And I think that needs to be handled differently. You know, our friend Douglas Crockford, who is a huge uh, JavaScript advocate, he, you know, doesn't say I invented JSON, which is a... It's sort of a text data representation that's very lightweight as opposed to XML. He says, I discovered mm-hmm. JSON, which is sort of a very humble way to say that, you know, he invented it, but he discovered it. It was going to be discovered if it was me or somebody else. Right. Yeah. I think it's an interesting sort of reality to all this. And and that being said, let's all remember that patents aren't forever. They're 20 years. Right. And, and 20 years can go by pretty quickly. Uh, maybe it needs to be shorter for some of these quote unquote discoveries. Sure. You know, these are all conversations that are worth having. And I would argue that the current situation where it is completely vague is the worst situation we could be. In. Probably right. So, David, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And you can definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We, uh, we plant them in the garden. Nice. They grow. <laughs> All right. Oh, man, here we go. Here we go. How do we how do we get started on this, my friend? So, you know, in my research around uh, genetically modified crops and so forth, and the, and the very we I realized it broke down into two categories that were very large topics. There mm-hmm. was the your intro material and sort of understanding what's going on and some of the things that have been done with genetic modifications, just sort of setting all that history. Yeah. And then there is, I would argue, the most controversial piece, which is this aspect of pesticide-resistant crops. Right. Where we have pesticides that are effective at controlling insects and, and invasive plants, but they are so effective they kill sort of everything. So you modify the plant you want to keep. So that it's not affected by that. So it's actually a better strategy, isn't it? Because pesticides are chemicals and nastiness and, you know, that you don't want to eat an apple if you think it's got jet fuel sprayed on the outside of it, do you? The problem when you make the plant resistant to that stuff is that you'll end up spraying more. Right. Like they, they, so there's a challenge to that argument that they're able to abuse pesticides because their plants are so resistant to it and everything else is not. I mean, there's definitely an issue here happening over time where, where more pesticide resistant plants and insects are coming up. And so it's an arms race. So is the goal to get to this point where we can so genetically modify our farming environment that we don't have to spray anything, that the, that the plants and the crops will resist bugs and, you know, weeds won't grow and we won't have to spray any chemicals at all? You know, the, that's an interesting idea. We're nowhere near there. I don't even know if we can get there. It's just not realistic. Yeah. Things that grow, you know, conditions that will allow any plant to grow – Allow their other plants to grow. There's only so much you can do in that scenario. And again, you know, maybe we didn't emphasize this enough in the modern agriculture show, but 
the modern way of growing food involves a lot of steps. Yeah. You know, we're not talking a casual spray of some pesticide or something. In some crops, a dozen times a season, like it's, it's a big deal. Right. Right. But, um, there are different, there are pesticides and there are pesticides, right? There's lots of different ways to do that. I, I want to talk about two important ones because they both tie into our core story about genetic modification. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, Bacillus thuringiensis. Yeah. And I practiced that name many times, but we'll <laughs> call it BT from now on. BT okay? sounds good to me, my friend. BT. Okay. <laughs> this is a bacteria that kills insects. It's, Completely organic. It was found by Japanese researchers back in 1901. That is amazing. So it's, you know, more than a hundred years in use as a, a biopesticide. Okay. I mean, it's, this stuff is sprayed on plants that are considered organic. Really? So, you know, there's always this presumption that organic food means no pesticides. Now you said it was a bacterial pesticide. Yes. So it's essentially a bacterial that's Harmful to pests, but absolutely benign to humans. Right. It, what it primarily kills is uh, larvae and caterpillars, plant-eating mm. insects. Wow. Okay? Okay. It is completely harmless to vertebrates, right? Its particular mechanism interferes with the growth of those uh, larvae, but it does nothing, essentially, to, to animals of any kind. And remember, we've been using this for 100 years. I guarantee you have eaten BT. I guarantee it's, it, too. I, it's unavoidable. It's on food. And there's no two ways about it. All right. And it's a completely naturally occurring thing. So let me tell you about a Monsanto scientist by the name of Amy Hood. All right. Yeah. Hi, Richard. Um, so this is Amy Hood, a bit of a seasoned veteran at Monsanto doesn't feel possible, but I've been with the company for over 20 years. I'm a chemical engineer by education and now I'm a communications person. So like you, um, when my high school counselor said, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, I'm going to be an engineer. And now look where I am. <laughs> so she's been doing this a long time. Yes. And uh, is kind of a generalist in dealing with uh, biopesticides and so forth. And certainly she knows her way around BT. And this is where the genetic modification play comes in. Because the downside to BT is that you spray it a lot. It does wash off with rain. Yeah. So okay. it's, it, you, you spray it tons. And it's a dried bacteria. You just put it in water. It comes to life. You spray it on your, on your plants. Not a big deal. But back in 1980, so a long time ago, Belgian researchers actually figured out what elements of the genetics in this bacteria killed insects. And it was only three specific proteins. Okay. And so they were able to incorporate it into a plant. The first plant they incorporated into, believe it or not, tobacco plant. But fairly quickly, the idea caught on because once you had these genes incorporated in the plant, if a biting insect like the larva bit the plant, it died. Right. No spraying, just dies. Okay. okay. So now think about this from the impact on a crop is that you now can plant them closer together because you don't need to leave room for your sprayers to go through. Right. You don't have to run your vehicles. To do all that spraying, you don't have to do all that spraying, and you're only killing the insects that actually bite the plant. I lost you. So one of the best examples of this is the corn borer. Okay. So this is an insect larva that destroys tons and tons of corn. It's incredibly effective. Right? It is an incredibly uh, powerful insect in terms of impacting corn. 
And if you use traditional insecticides on it, you not only kill the larva only to about 60-70% effectiveness level, but you kill everything else. And mm. the same problem with BT. BT is pretty effective on it, but there are lots of beneficial insects. Ladybugs and lacewings like to eat the, the eggs of the corn borer. Spiders and hoverflies actually eat the caterpillars. Like, you have insects working for you. Wow. And then you spray BT and kill them all. Huh. But you use BT corn, and now those insects are working for you, and the few that get through and bite your corn die. Interesting. So it's a little more selective. It's much more selective, but it is a genetic modification. Right. Here's what's interesting, when we, and one of the reasons we separate these two shows. Pesticides are controlled by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Okay. Right? Pesticide residues in food are dealt with by the FDA, uh -huh. and the USDA does the measurements around them. Okay. So most of what you, you're dealing with when you're understanding the impact of pesticides comes through an EPA relationship. And in 1995, the EPA approved the first traditional BT crops, corn, potatoes, cotton, because the toxin that was in the crop, and it is a toxin to insects, mm. had only impact on insects, not on mammals. Okay. Right? All of the testing done showed exactly that. But the question was, like, what happens when you eat this? Good question. What does happen when you eat this? And so Amy says... It's a gene that has a protein that's expressed that is specifically targeted to an insect. And so you're absolutely right. And we know that the expression of that gene is very, very small. I mean, what we call the margins of exposure are in the millions when we look at a lot of the, the levels of those in, in the crops. So interesting language by Amy there, that mm. a gene is just a protein that's expressed, right? Right. But the, the interesting reality here is you're no longer talking about the entire BT bacterium being on the plant. You're talking about fragments of it. So really, hmm. the genetically modified version of the plant has less of the BT-ness in it than the sprayed plant does. Really interesting. So because it's only those, those genes that are effective for, for that job that it's supposed to do. That's right. You know, and there's a really powerful part of all of this that the process of understanding these specific elements sort of opened up a weapon set hmm. on how insects can be defeated by plants. Hmm. That initial discovery has led to just a kind of a myriad of discoveries. And again, then not only beneficial for us. Um, to create additional, if we, if we wanted to go the direction of creating a genetically engineered crop, but also for those types of BTs that could be topical BTs as well. Notice she said types of BTs. So this, <laughs> so a whole series of BT-like uh, genes, I guess you could say, or genetic uh, tools have been created because of this. It's an arsenal. Right? It's a deeper understanding of how to defeat insects with certain key proteins that you can add safely to plants. Wow. There's more to be done here. And look, it's not that big a deal for us in the first world, mm. right? Although it does decrease spraying substantially. Remember that, that Amy spent a long time working in agriculture as well. Right. And I know a lot of people who have, who worked on a farm as they were growing up. And they, um, so especially I, one of my colleagues grew up in Arkansas. And when he talks about his family growing cotton and corn and how much insecticide spray, and so this is not just specifically using um, the BT sprays, but other insecticidal sprays that they had to use. And on corn, he, used to, he says they used to have to spray probably 10 times a season at least in Arkansas. 
and on cotton they would spray a lot too. On average in the United States since BT crops were introduced, we've been able to reduce insecticide spray in the U.S. by 90% on corn and by 66% on cotton. Holy crap. It's huge, right? But that's not even the biggest impact. Again, we're still talking first world. Think about other countries. Sure. But so now think about a farmer in India and a smallholder farmer in India. And he or she is going out to his farm and they're spraying in a much different way than a farmer. In the, most farmers in the United States are going to spray. They're walking out with their insecticide spray on their back. And probably most people in those countries aren't wearing a, any kind of personal protective equipment when they're spraying their insecticide. And they're going out to spray and they're spraying 10 or 20 times a year in their field. And now they can reduce it to one or maybe two sprays a year. Wow, that's really significant. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting angle on this. And I hate to play on the, you know, we're saving the developing world and so forth, because they're still making money at this. Sure. But there, it's just a more relevant impact when you talk about places that can't afford the fancy equipment, where it's literally people walking in the fields with a, something on their back, that being able to incorporate this into a plant, I mean, it's simply saving lives. So based on this last discussion that we've had here, I would say that BT and modifying crops to basically have BT in them and all of the things that it represents has been a good thing. This is a good news story on this part of the conversation around pesticides, without a doubt. Now, I don't want to say it's all glorious. I have been looking at a situation in China. So back in about 1997, early in, in China, sort of opening to the world, they started growing BT cotton, millions of acres of it, in fact. Wow. Because BT cotton is resistant to the bollworm, which is your primary pest on cotton. And if the bollworm larva bites BT cotton, it dies. Bull weevils. In, yes. But in China, another pest has arisen. So uh, an, an insect local to the area, normally suppressed by the boll weevil called the myrid bug, has expanded massively because the boll weevils keep dying off. And they're now infesting the cotton heavily and they are resistant to BT. Not every insect is, is, is uh, vulnerable to BT. Yeah. So, and I don't, I don't want to under, you know, what Amy said was very powerful about the fewer sprayings. Well, one of the things you're starting to see happen in recent years now is that they're having to introduce new insecticides to kill other bugs in addition to the BT. So it's not a be all end all. This is an arms race and it's continuing on. But remember that both sides are armed while the insects are finding new ways to penetrate into the plant. There's still more opportunities in this particular set of vectors for making plants immune to insects. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? It must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to choose the lesser of two weevils. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I held back. <laughs> like, I, was... I didn't hear it right away. <laughs> oh, save me. That's pretty nasty, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled office solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial 
at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Lance Farquhar. Oh, why just Lance? Golf, Golf clap, clap for you, sir. For you, sir. And Lance just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. So, Richard, what does it take to make a BT crop? You know, it's less complicated than you might think. It's it's kind of it's really quite interesting. Uh, and I asked that question of Amy Hood as well. Exactly what it takes to make this, because like, there's a, I think there's a tendency towards thinking it's like a Frankenstein effort. You know, there has to be lightning down from the skies, right. and it's it's like a miracle that it actually happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a, a misconception that people have about how a GMO is made. Um, and, and I wish, and maybe um, at some point in the future, you'll be able to reference, because I think we just did a video of one of our folks making a GMO. It's very eye-opening to people when they see someone make a GMO. And you have this um, little Petri dish of agrobacterium, and so it's just a clear liquid. It's very simple. And you take a corn embryo, so you dig out the little embryo on a kernel of corn, and you put it in a dish, and you put it with the agrobacterium, and you kind of swirl it around and let it sit for a minute, and boom, you've done that transfer that makes a GMO. Oh my God, they're cooking. It's like they're in a kitchen. Yeah, and and admittedly, that's the easy part, (laughs) right? You don't do that with just one uh, embryo. You do it with a hundred okay. and then you grow them all and they don't all take the gene equally. So you're really looking to see if the trait grows in. They actually do genetic testing on the plant they've just made to see that it actually has taken on the gene they're looking for the way they want it to. It's amazing. So you, they get a really big Petri dish is what you're saying. Right. <laughs> I, I also asked Amy about some of the other technologies besides agrobacterium like gene guns. The old technology is the gene gun. And uh, it has a little bit more randomness with it, but overall testing would catch all of that anyway and would, would verify that the gene went where you needed it to go. But Agrobacterium 1 is just so much easier and simpler um, and more reliable. It is, the, to me, that is the technology that, that I, I know most scientists I know are using today. So what's interesting is this is a almost totally natural biological process. There's evidence that agrobacterium has created hybrids on its own without our involvement at all. And so these days, at least in Monsanto, it's the only technology they're using. It's the reliable, consistent approach. That swirling of the liquid is literally letting the agrobacterium that has your intentional genetics, that plasmid, incorporate into the embryo of the plant. That's what they do. So when I think about, you know, gene editing, I don't think about that. I think of tools maybe, you know, like CRISPR, which is the first one that I've heard of that I actually understood. But I I tend to think of a a more surgical kind of precise uh, way to do this. But I guess what you're saying is the bacterium gets into the embryo, which is essentially the egg of the plant, 
Right. And and becomes part of its genetic code. Right. Well, Agrobacterium, like most bacterium, you know, has these different reproduction routes. And this particular one is very viral. It injects bits of DNA into other uh, cells so that through mitosis, when they split, they will naturally reproduce its gene as well. So it's and, both and a perhaps, bacteria and a virus. Yeah, it has, it has a viral reproduction vector. Wow. That is amazing. You think about our Modern Agriculture show, we were talking about how bread wheat came to be, and that genetic analysis showed it was both einkorn and goat grass. Right. What do you bet there was an agrobacterium involved in that? Yeah, you're probably right. You know, that's how these things actually happen. And, and again, it makes me feel more comfortable when you look at what they're doing here to realize they're working in specific constraints. Mm. What will the agrobacterium carry as far as a plasmid is concerned? What things can be, inf- quote unquote, infected by the agrobacterium? So this is, again, this is capitalism working at its finest. It's less expensive. Right. It's more reliable. Yep. And ultimately, it, it's safer. Because you are playing in a rational set of genes. My concern here, and this may end up being a whole other geek out, right? Okay. That, is, that is a very large topic, is because of the nature of news today, and also the nature of science, of their need to aggrandize, of their need to, you know, be exciting. Yeah. The weirdest things that have been done in genetics are the things that make the news. This is right. not sexy science. In fact, they even went so far as to say this is kind of embarrassingly simple science because it is so reliable, but that's what's good for business. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Are you ready to take the big one on? Okay, sure. So, glyphosate. And I was chastised a number of times for calling it glyphosate. It's glyphosate. 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 This is Roundup, essentially. Well, yeah, this is what Roundup became. I, I, my first patent I found for glyphosate was by a company called Stoffer Chemical, who patented it in 64 as a mineral chelator. So this is something designed to remove calcium, magnesium, copper, and zinc from pipes. Now, they patented it. The patent doesn't mean it became a product, which it did not. Okay. Okay. Uh, but it did show a remarkable propensity for killing plants. And Monsanto picked up on this and patented it, repatented it really, in 1974. And they had shown and explained in their patent in great detail, it's kind of interesting to read patents actually, that it is able to inhibit an enzyme that plants use to make amino acids, essentially to grow. Okay. And when you inhibit that, the plant cannot grow, it dies. Interesting. Right? But this, it really only affects plants. Right, There are many organisms, including humans, that are immune to it. And so the problem is it kills all plants, right, including food plants. And this is, I think, the brilliance of this model was here we have a very effective herbicide, but we have discovered that there are certain organisms that are immune to it. And if you take those genes and insert it into the food crop, now they're immune to glyphosate. And so you can spray as much as you want. The the food plant is not affected. Mm. Every other plant is. And we brought up in the previous GMO show that there's a whole bunch of people out on the interwebs and in the world who question the safety of glyphosate. Yes, without without a doubt. And it, because it's used so heavily. Remember, that patent was back in 74. Yeah. Right? It's been around a long time. And you can't just patent – you can't just – 
put something out and you're done, right? It took years to get it approved by the EPA, and it has to be steadily renewed. So they re-registered back in 93. They're actually in the midst of another re-registration starting back in 2009. This still isn't complete. Mm -hmm. Every time they change the formulation, anytime they come up with another use for it, anything like that, it has to go through the whole process again. Yeah. And that's why you need someone like Donna Farmer. Hi, it's nice to meet you. I've been with Monsanto almost 25 years. And I'm involved, as we talked about, in our product safety center, and that is my primary responsibility is looking at the safety of all of our products, both from the chemical side, the ag uh, protection products, as well as the biotechnology side. And I've been supporting glyphosate for almost 20 years. Wow, 20 years. So is there a conflict of interest there? I mean, the safety of a company's product is being monitored by someone at the company. I mean, I guess you have to start there, right? This gets into what a regulatory toxicologist actually is okay coming here um i became a what they call a regulatory toxicologist and so when i first started here in 1991 i was with supporting the new product division so we were looking for new chemicals that could be um, a, a nematicide or a fungicide or an herbicide i started there and then about five years later the glyphosate job became open now the job that i did in the very early on there's it's all prescribed. You know, we, we know the kind of things that we want to look for. We want to know, um, is it toxic orally? Is it toxic through the skin? Um, does it cause malformations? Does it cause damage to the DNA? If you take it over long term, does it cause cancer? So in our development program, we developed a series of screening assays that would lead us to questions that would let us know kind of the profile of that molecule and then whether it would have a chance to make it to the registration. So that's what a regulatory toxicologist does. They look at that data package that's required by regulators around the world. It's very prescribed. It is conducted according to, and we have to do this according to the laws. Um, if you are a pesticide registrar, by law, you have to register it with a regulatory agency. They have federal acts and there are state acts that you have to abide by, and there's a very prescribed set of data. So she's basically saying that, you know, they're, they're looking for a very set of particular effects over time and things that may be caused, but they're also, she said the word prescribed a lot, like, yes. like the government tells them, you know, what they can and can't do. But, and you're exactly right. So this is the EPA that she's talking about, although in different countries, there are different organizations with different sets of rules, and even each state has rules when it comes to things like pesticides, and they have to deal with them all. So the prescriptions are coming from those organizations saying, we want you to test for this, or we want you to test for that. Tell us what the dosage is for this, like all of those details. These packages are massive, and they take years to process. Okay. She talked about, you know, they're, they're in the process of doing a re-registration with the EPA right now. They're seven years into it. They expect it to be ten, a 10-year process costing roughly $250 million and representing 200 studies. Okay. That makes me feel a little better. It's hugely complicated, but you understand in the end, they are going to do what the EPA demands they do. So there is a case we made here for the strength of the EPA matters in this. Well, and if I was, you know, the CEO of Monsanto, I would want to spend a lot of lobbying money influencing them. If you, if you think that's possible or practical, right? There's an interesting conversation about how much of this regulatory process is scientific versus political. Really a great question right now in the world that we're in. Um, I would like to say when you look at the EPA scientists, 
Um, I think they're looking at it from the scientific perspective. But then if you look at where we are, there's a lot of political and social pressures. And so I think when you look at the scientists like myself and you look at the scientists at EPA and you look at the studies that we conduct, they are done purely on a science basis. Um, and so, but there are some politics, I think, that come into play on this. I never mean to sound like, you know, the, the conspiracy theorist or anything, but you can sort of see where, you know, that corporations do lobby uh, organizations yes. like this to get them to either relax or, you know, uh, relax regulations or look the other way when something gets, uh, you know, when something is borderline, that kind of stuff. And, and I just, we just have no idea what goes on beyond clo- behind closed doors. And you know what? I'll get to some of that because I have some interesting pieces for you to look at related to this. But it is an interesting point to be made that in the end, the EPA asks the questions Monsanto has to answer. Right. So if you shape the question, they might be easier to answer. Correct. But even if you take away nefarious intent, it is very easy to miss questions to ask, too. Mm. Especially since the product continues to evolve, plants and their pests continue to evolve, right. and people's utilization of this product continues to evolve. Right. The challenge of Roundup is it is wildly successful, almost unbelievably successful, because it has so many great characteristics. Right. It is useful in a lot of ways. One of the things that's great about Roundup is that it binds to soil. You won't find it in waterways. Once it comes off the plant, it's actually stuck in the soil, and the bacteria in the soil break it down into its component parts. It renders harmless. All right. Well, that's a different story than we heard in the zeitgeist uh, of the day, which is that it runs off into uh, the water supply and contaminates everything. Then there are pesticides that do run off in the water supply, but the main thing you need to be concerned about in the water supply are fertilizers. Right, So the nitrification of the oceans and of rivers and so forth comes from fertilizer. And I don't know that we want to do a whole other show on that because it's a different topic, but it is important. And are you able to use less fertilizer when you spray with Roundup? Not necessarily. This is about stopping other plants from growing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't encourage your plant to grow, although given your plant has less competition, that helps. Right. Sure. There's there's definitely an advantage here. And there is a downside to this approach, too. You can use an awful lot of Roundup. In fact, there are different uses for it. In wheat, so here's an interesting problem that it happens glyphosate deals with. Okay. When you're growing a crop of wheat, so you have hundreds of acres of wheat, not every pa- every square yard of soil is identical to every other square yard. Yeah. You And some gets more sun, some gets less. Some has more moisture, some has less. Some gets more fertilizer, some has less. It varies across your crop. Now, you have a problem when you're growing wheat. As it matures, it gets to a certain age where the plant starts to yellow. Mm-hmm. And if it gets old enough, it will drop its seeds, a.k.a. the food you're trying to gather. Right. You don't want them to drop you. It's very hard to pick them up. You want to use a threshing machine, that, that will, a harvester that will come in and cut the crop off and then strip the wheat out of the crop. Yep. But you do not want to harvest green wheat. A, it's not as big as it could be, so you're losing potential food value. B, it's very hard on your equipment. When you cut, cutting green stalks is much harder on your blades. So it's going to cost you money in broken machinery and maintenance if you don't let it fully mature. So it seems like there's a window of opportunity 
that may be narrow in which you have to reap your crop. Right. And so along comes the desiccant. So glyphosate can also be used as a desiccant. In other words, dry the crop, force the crop to age and yellow. Okay. And so, and this is part of the recommended use when growing wheat using Roundup is that you do an extra heavy spray close to harvest within a week or two of harvest. And there's very specific rules on how you're supposed to do this and it will force your crop to ripen almost all simultaneously. This bumps up your total yield substantially. Sure. It's easier on your equipment. You get a better harvest by using this way in exchange for putting a substantial amount of Roundup on the crop. Okay. So, you get the, I mean, Roundup is magic, right? And the stuff is remarkably simple. So when you buy it as a farmer, you buy it in drums that are, are essentially uh, pure glyphosate. Okay. Now, you don't use it by itself, and you dilute it heavily. You need a surfactant, and the usual is a thing called polyethylamine. And it's, believe it or not, far more toxic than glyphosate. Polyethylamine? <laughs> yes. Huh. Polyoxylethylamylene. Polyoxylethylamylene. Yes. So you mix this uh, in a ratio of two to one uh, glyphosate to the surficant with water, and then you dilute it 40-fold so that your actual concentration uh, is less than 1% of glyphosate. Okay. And uh, half a percent of the surficant. You know, in reality, when you're spraying this stuff, it's almost entirely water. All right. Right? It's like 95% water in the normal dilution for crop growing. Now, weed killers, because people used to be able to buy this stuff. You can't buy it in Canada anymore, but you'd be able, you'd be able to buy this stuff to spray on your dandelions. Yes, I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, and those tended to be 10% solutions. They were very concentrated. You sprayed them specifically on the thing you wanted to kill, and they killed it. No two ways about it. Mm. Now, Glyphosate's not a poison in the traditional sense of a poison, right? And understand that, you know, the trick with poison, if you really want to understand poison, is you go all the way back to uh, Paracelsus, who's the guy who said, this is the scientist from the 15th century, the father of toxicology, who said, the dose makes the poison. Yeah. Alcohol is a poison. Yes. Right? If you have the right dosage, you're buzzed. If you have the wrong dosage, you're dead. Yeah, that's right. Uh Along the way of doing the research on this, I found hospital reports of people who have attempted to commit suicide using glyphosate. No. Yes. So typically farmers, typically using the full 100% concentration, and typically they survive. Does it screw them up in the process? Well, you're not going to have a good day. No. And I, and I bring this up because there's a video of uh, a, a guy attacking a uh, a Monsanto person saying who was saying glyphosate is safe. And the guy says, well, I have some right here. Will you drink it? Oh, yes. I remember this. Yes. And rightly, he refused. Now, you'd also stormed off in a huff and da-da-da-da-da. Probably not a good outcome all in all. It's a fairly unfair thing. You should not drink glyphosate. No. Okay? No. It's bad for you. No two ways about it. But if you do, you won't immediately die. Ultimately, it can cause heart failure. But should you get to the hospital, and I have the hospital reports, the treatment, and this is why this information is available, so, what it, so when hospitals need to know what to do, is they will pump your stomach, and they will uh, put you in an IV, and they will keep you breathing, and after about a week or so, you'll probably walk out of there. Jeez. Okay? So it's a crappy poison. It's not good for no. you. But it, this is an arsenic, 
right? Like that's not what this is. It's but it is not digestible by humans. Unlike BT, hmm. this passes through your body. The reason it takes about a week is you have to pee it out of your system. Okay. And it just takes time for it to pass through your body and be released. And is there any okay. evidence that it has any carcinogenic or lingering effects? Well, up until recently, no. Uh-oh. And then the IARC report came out. Oh. So the World Health Organization has a group called IARC, okay? Okay. And IARC is in the business of identifying carcinogens. And in 2015, and this is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and in 2015, they categorized glyphosate after 50, 60 years of it being used as what's called a group 2A carcinogen or possible cancer-causing agent. But they don't now, have any direct linking evidence. No. And remember, they and the IARC doesn't do any of their own research right. here. This is taking other people's research and making this assessment. Now, it's important to understand what else is in the 2A category. Okay. Okay. And there's a lot of things that are in the 2A category. Things like... I wonder um, if bourbon is in there. <laughs> uh, no, it's actually a higher category. Oh, than that. that's awesome. Uh, 2A includes things like being a hairdresser because of occupational exposure. Okay. Working night shift that it disrupts your circadian disruption, also considered a 2A. Uh. Uh, a nasty substance called acrylamide. Acrylamide is the compound made when you cook meat on the barbecue. Ah, right. Okay. Now, I mean, you want to talk about more dangerous uh, cancer-causing agents, think bacon. Yeah. Or coffee. Coffee? Right. They come in in higher categorizations. Ooh. Believe me, the IR categorizes everything into <laughs> something. Okay. Wow. That's their job. Wow. So, yeah, there are high, they, there are much more risky substances than glyphosate. Unfortunately, on the back of that report, the Netherlands government banned glyphosate. And why did they do that? Uh, because they couldn't ban night shifts. <laughs> Okay, so independent study, is there any that isn't done by a Monsanto or by an FDA or an EPA? Remember that the EPA and the FDA do not do studies per se. What they do is put requirements on their registrants to prove safety. Okay. So typically, most of the research is going to be done by a DuPont or a Monsanto, I mean, any of those companies. There are third-party organizations, but... Remember that the funding for public science has been slashed to almost nothing. Yeah. If you were wondering what public scientists did, what the National Science Foundations do, mm. this is one of the things they would do. It's the most important thing in science is this repeatable experiment. Right. The problem is when science is about the money – when you're funded by a company or you're trying to get tenure and so forth, yep. repeating existing experiments isn't going to get you a win. You've got to come up with new cool things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All of this hyping of science as a whole, which has led to a disillusionment of science, has, be has come from a distortion of the scientific process. It is a effort of statistics. It is about repeatability. And the work's not being done. Yeah. It's a shame. It is. Mm. 
So what are we left with? Go ahead and eat corn and eat veggies and don't worry about uh, glyphosate if you're not drinking it directly? The thing to be aware of is the way we're currently doing testing has limits. While it's extensive, to talk to poor Donna Farmer about the year she's spending on recertification and so forth is really going through a bureaucratic process created by the EPA that may or may not be effective. We're in an interesting time for this product because it is so successful. It's in almost everything. Right. And, and you can't digest it. You just pass it through your body. So the question you have to ask is, how much glyphosate is in our systems these days? Right. right? And that's a test that's not being done. Now, you do have the FDA, and the FDA has a mandate to test for pesticide residues in food. Right. And in fact, they published a, they publish a routine report, and I'll include the link to this, for pesticide residue monitoring. What's interesting about this report, the latest one being in February of 2015, is it has no mention of glyphosate at all. Hmm. Okay. What's even more interesting than that is the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, yep. published a report against the 2012 report, which did not have any glyphosate in of FDA, saying to the FDA... Why is the most popular pesticide in the world not being tested for? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to have to cast any specific references here, but the bottom line is something funny happened at the FDA over there, and another government office, the GAO, has calling them out on it. Well, well, so that's good, I think. That is a good thing. And that pressure has made the FDA announce, although they haven't started, that in 2016 they will be doing continuous testing on glyphosate levels in food. Uh, I would point out, not to gloat or anything, that the Canadian agency that's responsible for the same things started last year doing the same kind of testing. Oh, good. Yeah, we'll follow your lead. Well, we're all watching. Look, we can't ban glyphosate. No. That's the brass tax. We cannot ban it. It is responsible for a massive amount of food production. Mm. People will starve if we stop using this. And remember that our need to produce food is going up, not down. The expectation is because between increase in population, which is not the big part of this equation, we're at 7 billion now, we'll probably top at 9. Mm -hmm. But the increase in lifestyle of people crawling out of poverty and expecting better foods means that by 2050, we have to double food production again. Wow. How are we going to do that? We're going to do it with technology. There's no two ways around it. Mm. Now, I want more studies done in glyphosate. Would it make sense, perhaps, to create processes to remove glyphosate from food before it goes into the grocery store? Well, it could be done. Well, that makes sense. Obviously, um, I think first we should test ourselves for how much is in us and if it's doing us any harm. And, and what the consequences are, too, right. which really gets us to the close of this conversation. How does glyphosate work? Yeah, how does it work? So there's a an a, a thing called the shikimate pathway. Shikimaka what? The shikimate pathway. That sounds almost nasty. Now, you got to go back to single-celled creatures, right? So we have the prokaryotes and the eukaryotes. Yeah. Okay? The prokaryotes are your ancient, simple, single-celled critters, right? The amoeba of the world. That's sort Some of Some of my cousins fall into that category. Nice. Yeah. And the eukaryote is the breakthrough in evolution. Because in the eukaryote, even when you're still talking about single cells, it's when you start seeing things like mitochondria. Right. Right? These organelles or portions inside of a uh, of an individual 
cell that had specified tasks. And there's a variety of different eukaryotes. Humans fall into the eukaryote category, right? In the case of mitochondria, they are your energy powerhouses. That's right. And it's one of the, one of the things that makes, uh, eukaryotes unique is that they do evolve these powerhouses, this ability to use ATP and things like that. And there is a concept called the upper and lower eukaryotes, which really Ray is saying the eukaryotes that are bacteria versus the eukaryotes that are humans or animals, hmm. right? But it's it's very gauche to think that way. It's more complicated than that. Yeah. Plants are fairly evolved eukaryotes as well. But the shikimate pathway affects virtually every prokaryote and certain classes of eukaryotes. Okay. So the fact that glyphosate blocks the shikimate pathway, that's how it breaks up their ability to make amino acids and ultimately kills the plant. And rightly so, the eukaryotes that make up human cells aren't, uh, aren't affected. They don't use the shikimate pathway. But there are things in our body that do. Yeah, I'm thinking of the, the flora in your gut. Yes. Intestinal flora is full of both prokaryotes and eukaryotes. And they're kind of... Um Important. Well, they are how you digest food. Yeah. Right? They, you're talking about a single-celled critter, millions and billions of them, that grabs elements of food and converts it into something your body can utilize. Right. That's what they're for. Right. So, I have a series of hypotheses here. Okay. The first is that we're now consuming enough glyphosate that it is endemic in our system. Right. These are tests that are currently not being done and probably should be to see just how much glyphosate can be found in, in people's bodies day in, day out. What if we're at an endemic level that it's constantly there? And so effectively, we have pesticide running through our system all the time, making sure that certain classes of intestinal flora cannot survive. I wonder if they have any correlation with the sharp rise in these intestinal based disorders like sensitivity to gluten, celiac disease any of these kinds of things. It kind of makes sense that there might be a tie there. Well, and celiac is an autoimmune disease, which is a fairly important thing, but then so is colitis and Crohn's. They all have a certain autoimmune element to them. Uh, but when you, you cannot deny that people complain today that they, if they eat bread, right, they eat something with gluten in it, they feel unwell, right? Maybe some of it's psychosomatic, maybe it's not. The reality is, and especially when you talk about wheat, when you talk about because it's desiccated, because it gets treated with more Roundup than almost any other plant. Right. Although, admittedly, we're now finding that we, we've got vegetable crops using glyphosate. Right. Right. Sure. Virtually every kind of cereal crop using glyphosate. The uh, the uh, USDA is now setting regulations on how much glyphosate can show up in livestock because the corn being fed to to beef and chickens and so forth, also treated with glyphosate. Huh. So we are, and because it, it takes time for it to pass out of the system, and again, a simple solution to this would be for the last three weeks of the cow's life, they don't eat any glyphosate so that it all passes out of their system mm-hmm. before you actually butcher the animal, right? If we knew this was an issue, because we haven't done these tests. Right. It's interesting. Hey, tell us about croplife.org. So I found out about croplife.org by talking to Donna and Amy from Monsanto. And they were, this is an organization specifically about bringing modern agricultural practices all over the world. Okay. So on one hand, you have the pure capitalism of the modern agribusiness in the Western world, just trying to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, you have the developing nations that 
are trying to produce more food for the people right. and trying to rise, bring their farmers out of poverty. And so certain techniques can be used, right? The story that Amy told around Indian farmers using BT crop just so that they don't get exposed anywhere near as much pesticide is a great case for this. Right. And so croplife.org's business, they have both a U.S. arm and an international arm, talks about oversight on making sure we have uh, real crops with the best products possible and proper markets for them so that we can actually deal with it. And, and there's, you will find stories there about dealing with things like how are we going to feed 9 billion people when that time comes in the next 30 years or so? Well, those are all good things to think about. And we hope the landscape gets better in terms of independent science and research. And uh, we'll stick on it. And we'll, we'll cut. We'll yep. There is definitely more testing to be done and more testing being done. The, the whole side of the lobbying involved in this industry and lobbying in general is deeply concerned. Yes, it is. Right. The, the uh, but the good news is it works both ways too. You're finding, I'm finding cases where politicians have found inappropriate language that have been added to, you know, we're headed down. I'm, I'm going to stop right now. There's another show here yes. about how broken the lobbying system and money in politics as a whole. Although I hope you got a sense that money in science has created a problem too. That's right. Yeah. And we, you know, the thing is there are things we don't know and perhaps the influential money is blocking the research. Who knows? But the research has to be done. Yes. And, and apparently more research is being done. The concerns around glyphosate are being surfaced in larger and larger ways, and orga government organizations and others are starting to do more testing. I think we'll have more information. I would argue that if there's anything that needs funding right now, it's understanding the human biome. Right. The intestinal flora represents one of the most complicated parts of the entire human system that might represent an awful lot around health issues, around uh, influences on the environment, we just don't know enough. The problem is there's no easy product there. So corporations aren't necessarily going to do their research on this. And anybody who thinks that they know what the gut does in Toto is completely full of it. Right. When when you know that the, ba with the, the, the top scientists in the world don't know, yeah, then you know nobody knows. Nobody knows. All right, my friend. That's the show. Thank you very much for uh, bringing this all to light. It's great. Yeah, and love all the feedback we can get. If this show spoke to you, if you think we missed anything, send us comments, send us emails. If you'd like to see more in this topic area, uh, I'm ready to do a little bit more space shows, but I think I've left clear openings for there's more to talk about in terms of fertilizer, mm -hmm. in terms of food distribution. There's more to do. All right, that's it then. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. 
Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.